Lord, you are worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, to be honored, to be lifted up. There's no other name under heaven that is worthy to be worshipped and to be praised. And we just thank you for your love and your grace. We pray now as we go to your word that you administer to every one of our hearts. Lord, just reveal your truth to us. We thank you again that as we continue to look in the, in the epistle of the Roman church, just the fact that we are truly all sinners, but we thank you that you're a loving and a gracious God who died in our place. We just ask your blessings upon this time. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said... Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Santa Cruz. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we'll be happy to loan you one. And as I say every week, you're you're more than welcome to take that home as our gift to you. Please do that. Again, faith comes by hearing and hearing by Word of God. So we read the book, don't wait for the movie. We need to be in God's Word. Amen. God's Word is what transforms us. By, as you're turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, I do want to encourage you, Wednesday night, we're actually going to kind of take a virtual tour through Israel. We just came back, I don't know, three or four weeks ago from Israel. And just to give you a, a real, put the Bible in 3D for you. Really just let you see. We'll look at Mount Carmel and where Elijah called fire down from the sky. We'll see a picture of it and then we'll look at what God's Word says happened on that spot. And it's awesome to go through place by place. And I just encourage you, maybe you don't always come out on Wednesday, but if you have any interest in, in seeing it, I really encourage you to come out. And it really will be a you know, brief Bible studies through each of the spots, seeing where they took place, again, putting the Bible in 3D. Well, this morning, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, and if you're new to Calvary Chapel, we just go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the Bible. On Wednesday nights, we're in Numbers right now, just going right through the Old Testament, starting in Genesis. We started in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going verse by verse through the, the New Testament, and we come to Romans chapter 3 this morning. But I just want to set the tone for you in case you're here for the first time or just to refresh your memory if you've been here every week, that the four Gospels are a picture of the life of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. It's the good news that Jesus came and suffered and died that we might have eternal life. It's the story of His life. It's the genealogy of His life. And there's four Gospels, four different witnesses, all written to different uh, groups of people. Matthew, for example, is written to the Jews and really emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecy. I encourage you to to grab some of the Old Testament tapes, but you see that Jesus, the place of birth, how he lived, how he would die, the miracles he performed, his genealogy, all of it is the fulfillment of prophecy and all of it would be impossible were he not God. You go through Mark and Luke and John and each of them with a different emphasis, but all of them reinforcing the same story. In Jesus' day, you had to have two witnesses, and he had four. But not along with just those four eyewitnesses that saw what Jesus did. And by the way, if you happen to see that thing on TV recently where they were challenging the Bible, it kills me because you have people that have no idea what the Bible says. The reality is that all the Gospels are indeed eyewitness accounts And when you take 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents and three languages over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions, how is that possible? Because God wrote it, amen? And this is the Word of God, not the opinions of men. And we need to follow God's Word. And so the Gospels are the story of Jesus' life. And then we went through Acts. And the book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. And the book of Acts shows us the first century church. And what did the first century church do? And how did they live? And they had a burden for the lost. And they were sold out for God. And it was only possible because in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 it says, You shall receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come what? 
upon you. And the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they went from apostles who were napping to guys who were standing up and preaching the gospel with boldness. And so we, we've gone through the Gospels, and we've gone through the book of Acts, we've seen the life of Christ, we've seen the life of the early church, and now Romans is the first of the Pauline epistles. And an epistle is simply a letter. Paul is in Corinth when he writes this letter, he's, and as he writes this letter, he's writing it to a church in Rome that he's never visited before. And he's writing this letter to encourage them, to strengthen them in their walk, but also to clarify and give them understanding of why Jesus died. To give them understanding of what we call today doctrine, which is just a big word for truth. Biblical truth and understanding. And as we go through Romans, we're going to see five clear doctrines in there. The first one is the doctrine of sin. We're going to finish that up this morning. And the second one is the doctrine of salvation, which we will begin upon this morning in the last half of the chapter. After looking at sin and salvation, we'll look at sanctification, which means being set apart in your walk with God. Jesus, again, did not save you, as I said many times, to be a pew potato. Amen? He didn't save you to be a big fat sheep, the best fed and you know, most spiritually dead folks on the planet. He saved you to use you for His glory. And so after we understand we're sinners in need of a Savior, He sets us apart to be used. Then we'll look at the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. God knows everything. Nothing gets over on God. Amen? Does God know what's going on in the Middle East? Yes, He does. It says in His Word. And so we can trust God that He's in control, and He knows about everything that's going on in your life as well. And then lastly, we'll see the doctrine of service. So we're going to see that as we go through Romans. And in the first two chapters, what we've seen thus far is we've seen just, the, again, the sinfulness of man, how we have fallen short of God's glory. The first chapter, He was speaking to the Gentiles, and He told them that creation convicted them of their sin. If you look around at creation, you realize there is a God. Now, regardless of what's being taught to our our high school and college students, you did not come from a puddle of slime that was hit by a lightning bolt. Amen? First of all, where did the lightning bolt come from? Where did the puddle of slime? It just doesn't work. Darwinism is a lie. And you know what? There's laws that prove it's a lie. And yet we teach theories that are contrary to, to the scientific laws of biogenesis, or the second law of thermodynamics that rendered Darwinism completely impossible, and yet people teach it as fact in our schools because they don't want to believe in God. And in chapter 1, he says, creation itself cries out his name. When we drive under a rainbow, who put that there? God did. And we'll all be accountable as we look out at creation. And then last week, he spoke more to the Jews. And he said to them, not only creation, but our inward conscience. Creation on the outside, that Holy Spirit working on us on the inside. Even before you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. Now this morning, we're going to move from the outward, right, creation, and the inward conviction, the Holy Spirit working upon us even before we're saved. And now we're going to look at the last thing that conceals to us or conveals to us real, real clearly that we are sinners. And what reveals to us that we are sinners is the Word of God. God's Word, the law, okay? Now, I've titled the message this morning, The Mirror to Man's Soul. And each morning, this morning when you got up, no doubt you have a morning ritual. You get up in the morning and there's certain things you do before you leave the house, before you let anybody else see your mug, amen? There's certain things you do, right? You get up in the morning and, you know, you probably, hopefully you have morning devotions and prayer, but no doubt you're brushing your teeth, at least I hope so, person sitting next to you, right? Brush your teeth, you shower, you shave, you brush your hair, maybe you put some makeup on, you know, you get a cup of coffee, you have breakfast, and then off to school or work. 
And this, this routine may vary, but I guarantee you there's one thing in this routine that probably all of us, maybe some of you guys not so much, but most of us have this in common. We look in a mirror, right? We want to look and make sure that when we walk out the door that, you know, we don't have like stuff in our teeth or our hair like all sideways or whatever. Because we want to be presentable before men. We want to be able to enter into fellowship and have people not run away from us because we, we're scaring them, right? And so, you know, as, and it, people say, well, you know, you put on makeup, you know, Chuck Smith said, if the barn needs painting, paint it, you know? I mean, do what you need to do to be presentable. And we do that physically because we want to be physically presentable before men. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is not the mirror that reflects how we look physically, but the mirror that reflects how we stand spiritually before Almighty God. There's a mirror that we look into. And the mirror is not the mirror that's on the wall. The mirror is God's Word. The Bible says that the, the law is a schoolmaster that leads us to the cross. And what happens is when you take the law, or the Word of God, and you put it up in front of your face, it makes you realize that you are a sinner. And that's what we're going to see this morning. But I want you to, and I, I know I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but when you look in the mirror at home and you see a blemish on your face, you don't take the mirror off the wall and scrub your face with it. The mirror reveals that there's a blemish, but it's not the thing that you use to cleanse yourself from it. And the same is true of the law. Too often we take the law and we try to take the mirror off the wall and cleanse ourselves with the law. If I just do better, if I just try harder, if I were a better person, then God would love me. Can I tell you that no matter how, quote, good you get in the eyes of the world or how bad you are in the eyes of the world, God won't love you any different. He loves you just the way you are. Amen? He that knows me best loves me most. That's the God that we serve. So we're going to look at this mirror into the souls of man this morning. To my soul, my heart, your heart. And again, we saw that they were condemned by creation. The self-righteous hypocrites were condemned by their own conscience. And today we're going to see that the Word of God reveals truth to every single man. Now I want to close before we look at the text and just remind you of the text from last week. Last week, the title of the message was, Why Did Jesus Have to Die? Why did Jesus have to die? People have seen the movie The Passion, and maybe they don't understand why he suffered and endured that. Maybe they've read the Bible and they've heard the story. I've had people ask me, why is it Good Friday? Shouldn't it be Bad Friday? Because he was beaten on that Friday. That was a bad day. No, if you understand, it was the greatest of all days. Amen? And we understand that Jesus died, but why did he have to die? Because we're all guilty. In the light of truth, in the light of our actions, in the light of secret thoughts. All men are sinners separated from God. And what we talked about last week is your heritage can't save you. I don't care how many Christians you've got in your family or if you came over on the Mayflower. It's not going to do you any good on Judgment Day. Amen? So your heritage can't save you. And the fact that you have a godly family or Christian relatives can't save you. Keeping outward religious rituals won't save you either. If you come up this morning and you take communion, but you've not given your life to Jesus Christ, it's in vain. Matter of fact, it's, it's heavy. You shouldn't do it unless you know God. Baptism. Well, I was baptized as a baby. Surely I'm going to heaven. Or maybe you were baptized. Baptism is an outward statement of an inward change, and baptism won't save you. Confirmation won't save you. Church membership won't save you. It must be a transformed life. You must come into a head-on collision with Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus have to die? Because you and I are all sinners. We're all guilty. And our sin had to be paid for. And Jesus died in our place that we might have eternal life. That's why Jesus had to die. But this morning we're going to continue to look at, again, 
you might, you're going, Pastor Dave, I think we've got it clear that we're sinners by now. I think we figured that out, right? We got half of a chapter. Now, let me tell you something. If God keeps putting it in his word over and over and clarifying it to us, do you think there's a reason for that? Absolutely. Because I don't think we can be reminded enough how desperate we are for him. How hopeless we are apart from him. How we need Jesus desperately. And how our good works could never get us into heaven. So this morning, we're going to see that there are two diametrically opposed camps in the world of mankind today. And you're in one or the other. You're either spiritually dead, under condemnation of sin, or walking in newness of life, justified by faith. That's it. You're either a child of the King, or you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're either a new creation in Christ, or you're spiritually dead. One or the other. And there's no in-between. You can't be kind of saved. You're not kind of there. That's the reality. And my heart would be that all of us would know for sure before we leave this place today that we've been born again. We are new creations in Christ. This will be an encouragement for those of you who know Him, and it may be a a real enlightenment to those of you who do not. So this morning we're looking at three things. First of all, we're going to see Him answering the Jews' objections. You'll notice that whenever Jesus spoke or when Paul wrote a letter, that there were those who didn't respond with repentance but often responded with accusation. You know, somebody comes to you and reveals to you that you've blown it. You know, when confronted with sin, we can do one of three things. We can accuse others, we can make excuses, or we can repent. And we're pretty good at the first two, amen? How many of you besides me are good at the first two? Well, it's not my fault, you know, right? My kids running around the house knocking something over. It's amazing how nobody did it. You know what I mean? You know, right? And there's always an excuse. And we do the same thing in our own lives. You know, it's somebody else's fault. It wasn't me. It was the woman thou gavest me, as Adam said all the way back in Genesis. But the reality is there must come a point of repentance, realizing we are sinners. And so the Jews are going to come, instead of repenting, they're going to bring accusations, and he's going to answer their objections. Then we're going to see the, the problem that man has, his depravity. But then, here's the good news. At the end of the message today, we're going to see God's solution. We've been hearing about man's problem for two and a half chapters. And we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to hear God's solution. Amen? Praise God for that. So let's begin looking at a mirror into man's soul. And as again, as we do, we're going to see our imperfections. It's going to reveal our sinfulness. But again, the good news is that He doesn't leave us in our sin. Look at verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Now the Jews respond because He had just told them circumcision is of no avail Godly, you know, your, quote, Jewish heritage won't save you. So then the Jews are saying, well, wait a minute. Then what's the big deal about being a Jew? What's the, what's the privilege about that? What good comes from us being Jews then if circumcision won't save us and our heritage won't save us? Tell us what the problem, what's the big deal? If we're just as guilty as the heathen Gentiles, then what advantage is there for us being Jews? Verse 2, how does Paul respond? He says, there are advantages, much in every way, chiefly because them were committed oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? What are you holding in your hand? The Word. He says, you guys have been extremely blessed because what you've had from the beginning is this. And you know what? We need to be thankful to the Jewish people for being faithful to to down the generations translate and carry forward God's Word. Amen? 
Do you know in those days that they held it in such high regard that every single time they wrote the name of Jesus, they would cleanse themselves because they were in such awe? They had to write in one continuous scroll, and there could be no erasing, and there could be no marking anything out, and a scroll would be like the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. If they made one mistake, one letter was wrong, you know what they did? Trash the whole thing and start it over. If they're in chapter 66 and the last verse, six months into their work, and they sneezed, throw the whole thing away. But you know what? Their reverence for God's Word is a blessing, and we need to be, have reverence for God's Word. And one of the problems that we see in the, quote, church today is people downplaying the Word of God. We need to reverence God's Word. It's God's love letter to us. And he said, you're blessed because you've had the Word of God. You've had access to it. Truth had been revealed to them. And here's the scary part. As you, if you've been coming on Wednesday night, or you've studied much of the Word, the Old Testament all points to what? To whom? It all points to Jesus. And the scary part is that they had the law and the prophets, and when Jesus came, who the roadmap to Jesus is the Old Testament, all pointing to Him, they missed Him. He came and they didn't realize, they didn't recognize Him. They had the, the Word of God, but they didn't recognize the God of the Word. And instead of, of wanting Him to be their Messiah, because He wasn't going to rule and reign and conquer the Romans, instead of crying out in worship, what did they do? They cried out, crucify Him crucify him having the word of god didn't excuse their behavior but it made them more accountable and so too are you and i you know we're accountable because we've got this book right here in our hands i mentioned this on wednesday night too often i have people tell me well i'm praying about something and i'll say well what is it? i'm praying about whether or not i should marry this unbeliever well you don't have to pray about that because the bible says no amen and too often we want to pray and get an emotional answer to something that is contrary to God's Word. We don't have to pray if it's in the Bible. It already says so. Do it. Amen? Again, read the book. Don't wait for the movie. Get this thing open. We struggle so often in our walk with God because we don't spend time in His Word. He said, you guys are blessed because you've got the Bible. And you know what? Of the people on this planet, nobody has more access to God's Word than the people in this country. Amen? And we're accountable for that, you guys. We should be the, the forebearers of the word. We should be the ones carrying the torch for the Bible and say, no, it's God's word that is faithful. And so he said, you guys are blessed, but it's not enough to have the word of God in their hands. They needed to have the God of the word in their hearts. And sadly, they had head knowledge about God through the word, but they didn't have a heart transformation. Maybe you're here this morning, you've had a Bible your whole life, and you know about the Lord, but you need to know him in an intimate way. Verse 3. For what if some do not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Will Jewish unbelief deter the faithfulness of God? Will the unbelief of mankind make the truth not the truth anymore? If you go to math class, and you're sitting in class, and you teach all the kids there that 2 plus 2 is 4, and the whole class says, oh, I don't believe it. Nah, I don't believe it. Is it still true? Of course it is. Because truth is not based on a democracy. We don't vote on whether or not something's true. Now, there's a thing out right now called the Jesus Seminar. Joke. If you hear that, run away quickly, okay? They vote on whether or not stuff is from God. Well, I don't think it is me. I, I vote that out. Take that out of the Bible. That doesn't work. If you're standing on a 50-story building and you don't believe in gravity and you step off, what happens to you? <laughs> right? I didn't believe. Blam! You splat on the sidewalk just like the other guy. Anybody else? Amen? Whether you believe it or not does not make it truth. It is truth. 
And the truth is the truth. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. Amen? And so he says, well, what about our unbelief? Will our unbelief make it, render it ineffective? Absolutely not. Verse 4. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. Amen to that. May we stop listening to what men say and check everything out against the word. You know, why is it I tell you guys to open up the Bible when you get here and encourage everybody to have one? Because I want you to see very clearly that I'm not teaching you my opinion. I want you to open this up and, and look at it yourself and let God be true and every man a liar. Let the words of every man fall to the ground, but only the word of God pierce our hearts and transform our lives. He said, let God be true. Of course not. The faithfulness of God, again, is not based on the beliefs of men. God is true. He's faithful to his word. He's constant in his promise. He will always fulfill his purposes. Again, it's not up to debate. It's not up to a vote. And just as the truth of God's word is not based on the popularity of men. God's word is what percentage true? 100%. Again, it grieves the heart of God to hear people, well, that's just Paul's opinion. Paul didn't write the Bible. The Holy Spirit did through his hand. Amen? Understand that. Know that. God wrote it. God's word, not the opinions of men. And again, Jesus is the truth. And we put our faith in him and not in any man because man will fail us every single time. You know what? The sad part to me is that most even quote Christians today do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They challenge the Bible. Well, I just, I don't, I don't, that didn't work for me. I like the go to heaven part. That works for me. I'm, I'm down, I'll write that, I'll check, I'll highlight that in my Bible. That's good. Going to heaven. You know, not doing drugs. Well, I kind of like drugs. I kind of like sleeping around. It's kind of fun. I'm enjoying it. You know, being drunk, that's good for me, right? I'll just leave those out of the Bible. No, 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 no. It's all God's word. We don't pick and choose. Amen. And it's all from Him, and we need to trust it all. You know what? Either trust all of the Bible or throw the thing away, because you can't pick and choose. Amen? And narrow is the way that leads to salvation, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. And not very many are going to truly understand and be faithful to His Word, but God's Word is the authority. We see a theme going on here? Now it says there, that you may be justified. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, at the end of the chapter. And it will be a great encouragement to you. This is a quote from Psalm 51.4, when David openly admitted his sin. And even in admitting his sin, David declared the righteousness of God and the truth of his word. It says, let every man be true, let God be true and every man a liar, that you may be justified in your words and may, may, be, may overcome when you are judged. If you trust in God's word, you will be justified. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will overcome on that day when you should be judged. God is faithful. He's merciful. We're going to see that he's both just and justifier later on in the text. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness, this, now this is the cop out of all. Listen to this. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. So if my unrighteousness proves that God is faithful, shouldn't I just keep sinning? The worse sinner I am, the more righteous it makes God appear. Do you know I've actually had people make that argument with me? Well, if I just really blow it, it'll just show how gracious God is. So I should go kill 75 people to show that God's really gracious. That's crazy. And what he's saying here is, my unrighteousness demonstrates his righteousness is 
unfair for God to wreak judgment upon me for sinning? Because my sin just shows he's righteous, so if I sin, should he judge me? Of course, because sin has consequences. Now, let me explain something to you. God is faithful and loving and merciful and gracious, but your sin still has consequences. Sin having consequences does not make God unloving. Amen? He gives us his word that we might not sin, but if we go out and we sin, and then there's consequences to our sin, it's because we chose to rebel against God. If, my, if I tell my children not to climb an 80-foot tall tree, because it will hurt them, and they just say, Dad's stupid, doesn't know what he's doing, I'm climbing. And they climb the top of that tree, and they fall down and land on the concrete, break both their legs, and end up in traction for a month. Is that because I'm an unloving, no-fun dad? Or because of the rebellion of my children. The same is true. Some people will say, well, it's just not fair. Yeah, I went out and I, I cheated on my wife, and, and now you know, I've lost my family, and, and this woman is pregnant, and I've got a, a venereal disease. Oh, boy, man, God's unloving. No, 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 you're in rebellion. God loves you, and he gives you this so you don't reap the consequences of sin. He says, here, I love you enough. Here's the guidebook for your life. Follow it. And sadly, there were those in Rome who said, hey, you know, if I sin, it just makes God look more holy, so why should he bring judgment upon me when I sin? Why should he allow me to go through difficulty? Those who the Lord loves, the Lord what? He disciplines or chastens, right? If God loves you, he will discipline you to keep you in right standing before him. I'm glad that when I sin, he convicts me. How about you? Because if he didn't, what would you do? You'd just go for it, right? There'd be no turning back. But he loves you enough to give you what I call the, you know, the Holy Spirit head slap, right? The conviction. It's just like that. People think I'm bald because, you know, my hair. No, I just, the Holy Spirit's been whooping up on me. But the reality is that when I sin, he loves me enough to discipline me, to draw me back into fellowship. And that's what he's saying here. Should, you know, because God is faithful, my sin reveals his holiness. Should he bring wrath upon me? He's doing that because he loves you and he wants to draw you back into a right relationship with him. Amazing the lengths men will go rather than repent. Look what he says. Paul says here, again, the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Certainly not. For then how will God judge? If God doesn't judge based on, the, on his own righteousness, on his own faithfulness, then how is he going to judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? Again, trying to say, hey, my sinfulness reveals God's grace. So why then should I be judged? Let me ask you a question. Who betrayed Jesus? What was his name? Judas. When Judas betrayed Jesus and went out and betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, what was the end result? Jesus was put where? On the cross. Jesus died on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Because of that, we have eternal life. So what Judas did was a good thing? No. What did Jesus say about Judas? It'd be better if he had never been born. Now, his sin still, by God's grace, led to God being glorified, but it doesn't mean that our sin is okay. It doesn't mean, well, if the end result's good, it doesn't matter how it got there. It's kind of like somebody getting up and just telling a whopper of a lie trying to lead people to Christ. Somebody faking healings to lead people to Christ. Somebody faking a testimony so it sounds great. You know what? God doesn't need us to lie for him. Amen? He doesn't need us to make stuff up. He's, he's faithful enough. His word is sufficient without us doing that. And Paul's addressing them here and just telling them, guys, our walk should glorify God, result in deeper fellowship with Him. And it shouldn't be false 
priesthood coming out of our mouths. We shouldn't stretch the story to give God glory. Amen? We shouldn't do those things. And he's answering their objections, saying, Guys, you are blessed. You have the word. And God's word reveals God to you. And you can know him in a personal and an intimate way. Verse 8. And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported and some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. The people that do such things deserve to be condemned. Rather than brokenness, repentance, they look for, for loopholes for sin. You know what? We've all done it, haven't we? We look at something we want to do and we try to find a loophole in the Bible. Well, it doesn't say specifically that I can't take LSD. I don't see, uh, the letters LSD in the Bible, I haven't seen them. Is it in there? Right? You try to find a loophole so you can feel good about your sin, right? It does say that, by the way, the word for sorcery in the Bible is pharmakia. Pharmaceuticals. Ah. Out, right? But God made uh, marijuana. He grew it right out of the ground. If he wouldn't have grown it, if he didn't want us to smoke it, you smoking apples and oranges and bark off of trees? I mean, that's stupid, right? But what happens is we try to find loopholes for sin and try to drive a truck through it instead of saying, you know what? God loves me. He knows what's best for me. He gave me his word so that I might walk in holiness before him, that I might have joy in my life, that I might not suffer. He loves me. May I follow his word. Instead of trying to find loopholes so I can play on the freeway. Find loopholes and reasons so I can go do things that will only bring me harm. So now he's going to move on and talk, not just answer the objection of the Jews, but talk about the depravity of man and make it real clear to these guys. Again, this dramatically records the, the end of the sin section. And watch what he does to just make it real clear. Here's the heart of man. He's going to describe it. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? He's saying, are we better than the, the Gentiles? As Jews, are we better than they? Not at all. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Not popular again in the church today to be told that you're sinners, but you all are, and so am I. And the Word of God clearly says over and over, and He says, guys, is there any advantage? I'm a Jew. Does that make me closer to God somehow? Do I have a special, you know, privilege before God that other people don't have? And He says to them, you know what? We're all sinners. All of us. Are we better than they? Under the same bondage, under the same condemnation. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. You look up the word none there, in the original language, you know what it means? None. Okay? That means how many of you are righteous? That'd be none of you. Amen? None means none. No, not one. That's zero, right? You're not righteous. And sadly, what did the Pharisees do, remember? Walked around the black robes on. Yeah, I'm righteous. That's right. Right? You know, you guys are privileged to have me in your presence. I'm going to stop right here in the middle of the street and pray. You're just so blessed that I'm here, right? And they walked around wanting people to worship them and magnify them and kiss their ring and, you know, all this kind of stuff and be magnified and lifted up. And, man, that just, that kills. By the way, again, there are godly guys who do it, but you will never see me wearing a robe when I'm teaching you the Bible. I just... That's just too fair. I just can't do it. Now, some guys who love the Lord to do it, God bless them, but I just can't do it. There's no way. That's what's on. Well, you're just so privileged to have me here. I'm wearing a robe. Look at me. Got purple in it. Royalty. Deity. Black. You know, big cross hanging around my neck. No. What we see here, very clearly, there's none righteous, no, not one. 
The Jews, they, they don't like that. What are you talking about? But we're, we're religious men. No, you're sinners in need of a Savior. Man's entire inner being is controlled by sin. Look what it says here. There is none who understand. There is none who seeks after God. What does that say? The word there for none, guess what it is? None again. So the guy sitting up on the mountain chanting, is he, he says, oh, I'm seeking after God. No, you're not. No, you're not, because the Bible says there's none who seeks after God. Do you understand that we don't find God? You ever seen those stickers, I found, was he lost? I found, no, you didn't find God. You didn't find God. He wasn't lost. He wasn't hiding. Holy Spirit draws you, you respond. Amen? Holy Spirit draws you unto salvation, you respond. Now, you don't have to respond. You can reject Him. But He draws you, you respond. You don't look for Him. He's seeking after you and calling out to you and drawing you unto Himself. Who gets the glory for your salvation? He does. Amen? It wasn't your good works, or I was just, I just really looked under every rock, and I finally found him. No, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. He drew you, and you responded. There's none righteous. There's none who seek after God. Now remember, who's he talking to? The Jews. How do you think they're feeling about this program? But we're the most religious. We got the big temple and the thing, and the, you know, right? We're as religious as they get. And he said, no, you guys don't look for God. You're not righteous. There aren't any who are righteous. Nobody seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They all together became unprofitable. There's none who do, does good. No, not one. Ouch. Now, wait a minute. Can you imagine being the guy with the robe and thinking you're super righteous? And he says, there's none who does good. Now, let me encourage you with this. I know that it's hard for us to fully grasp this. I know that to a certain degree, we all struggle with it. There's no such thing as a good man. There's no such thing. How many of you said he's a good man? I've said it. How many of you said it before? But he's such a good man. There aren't any. Amen? You know, I was up visiting my relatives in, in Seattle. I, didn't, I barely knew him. They hadn't seen me since I was a kid. My grandmother called and said, you've got to go see your great uncle. You know, I'm like, okay. So I went to see him. I didn't know he was. I wouldn't have known him if I saw him on the street. But I get there, and they got their whole family there. And, my, and, and we start talking. And they had just been to the funeral of their next-door neighbor. And they're saying that they couldn't wait to see him in heaven. And so I thought, oh, well, there's an opportunity. So I started talking to him about the Lord. And, and they said, I said, well, praise God. So he was a Christian. They go, Christian? What are you talking about? Christian, I don't know what you're talking about. And I said, well, you said you're going to see him in heaven. Well, he was such a good man. He baked cookies for everybody on the street. <laughs> He'd go over and wash your car when you were on vacation. He was such a good man. Now, those are nice things, right? Baking cookies is good. But guess what? Sinner! Amen? You still have an SIN problem. Baking cookies won't get you into heaven and take away your sin. If baking cookies could save you, then Jesus would not have to go to the cross. Amen? If washing the car of the neighbor or, you know, or volunteering at a charity or giving to people could save you, then those are all good things, guys. But that doesn't make you good. Because there is none that are good. How many times a day does a good man sin? Yeah, I said that to them. I said, how many times a day is a good man sin? I'm just curious. You include your thought life, everything you ever do. I said, do you think he sins at least, and this is ridiculous, at least three times a day? He probably sins three times a minute, but does he sin three times a day? They go, oh, well, yeah, probably. Oh, that's breakfast, lunch, and dinner, your thought life. I go, that's a thousand times a year. How old was this guy? Oh, he was 92. 92. So if he was the best man that I've ever met or ever lived, the guy had 92,000 sins, Right? 
Probably could add a couple zeros to that in reality. If you come before a judge with 92,000 crimes, where are you going? Right? And the reality is God can't have one sin in heaven or he's got what? He's got earth part two. Because one sin brings condemnation. So there can be no sin in heaven, but I got 92,000. If I'm the best guy that ever lived, there's no such thing as a good man. You can't get there, get there by your good works. You can't try hard enough. You can't be good enough. It's impossible. God doesn't grade on the curve. He grades at the cross. Amen? He doesn't compare you to Charles Manson. Well, I'm better than him. I'm better than Osama bin Laden. I'm no Saddam Hussein, right? You don't compare yourself to other men. You compare yourself to Christ and how you doing. You're falling short, amen? Good news is coming, I promise. Pastor Dave is wailing on us this morning. We have no understanding. There's none who seeks after. I was feeling pretty good about myself when I got here. Man, this is just rough. We've all turned aside, it says. We've all chosen to go our own way. We've all made our own decision. Lord, I don't need you. I'm going my own way. It's our own will, our own mind, our own heart. None of us does good. Look at verse 13. Look at this. This is getting pretty direct. Their throat is an open tomb. Okay, thanks for shopping, right? Your throat, your throat is a grave. Out of, your, out of your throat comes stench of death. Well, thanks a lot. I'm really feeling encouraged at church this morning. This is great. So corruption comes from the throats of men when they speak. Look what it says in verse 2. In verse, the next verse. With their tongues they practice deceit. The poison of asps, that's a snake, is under their lips. You know, the emphasis here is on human speech. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The sinner, spiritually dead by nature, only death can come out of his mouth. That's heavy duty. His mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Can I encourage you with something? Nothing slips out of your mouth. Amen? You ever use that? Oh, it just slipped out. No, it didn't. You thought about it, it went, and then out it came, right? And nothing slips out. Out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. You want to know somebody's heart? Just sit around and listen to them talk for a while. And the stuff that comes out of their mouth is going to reveal what's in their heart. They can say, well, no, I'm not really like that. I'm just, no, yes, you are. Because if it's coming out of your mouth, it reveals your heart. And what it says here in this text, that there's none righteous, none seek after God. They've all turned away from Him. None that does good. His throat is an open tomb. His tongues are full of deceit. Under His mouth there's a poisonous snake, verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And then it says, their feet are swift to shed blood. So again, he speaks of human speech, and now he talks about the sinner's feet. Just as his words are deceitful, so his ways are destructful. His words are deceitful and lying, and his ways are destructive in the way that he goes, in the way that he travels. The Bible says that our feet should be shod with the gospel of peace. But most lost people bring death and destruction wherever they go. Again, the Broadway leads to destruction. Look what it says in verse 16. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Is that? It has never been truer than today. Do people fear God? Or do they shake their fist at Him? I don't care what the Bible says. You ever heard that? Get that cross out of here. Take those Ten Commandments out, right? we got this attitude of no fear of what God can do. I don't believe. I'm going to do what I want. I don't believe. There's no fear of God. The Bible says the fear of God is the what? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's when we fear God and we have awe and reverence for God that we begin to understand and have wisdom in the midst of a lost and a dying world. There's no fear of God before their eyes. It says there that they have no peace. 
The way of peace they have not known. I've told you this before, that Elvis Presley said not long before he died, he would give all his possessions, all his fame, everything he had for 30 minutes of peace. Because you can have all the world has to offer, but if you don't know Jesus Christ, you will not have peace. You want to have peace? You've got to know the Prince of Peace. Amen? You can't work hard enough and do enough good things to have peace. The bank account being big enough won't bring you peace. You must know the Prince of Peace. And then you can live in a hovel and you'll have peace. Amen? Because peace comes from knowing Him. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, all the world may become guilty before God. So what does this law do? What does this tell people? It tells them that they're guilty. But if we don't see that we're sinners, we'll never see a need for a Savior. If we don't see that we're guilty, we'll never cry out to Him in repentance. Now what was this list? It said this, of sin. It corrupts your mind, you don't understand. Corrupts your heart, you don't seek after God. Corrupts your will, you turn aside and you don't do good. It corrupts your throat, it's an open tomb. It corrupts your tongue, you practice deceit. It corrupts your lips, poison's coming out. It corrupts your mouth, you're full of cursing and bitterness. It corrupts your feet, you're swift to shed blood. You have no peace, you have no fear of God. Now that's not exactly, I'm okay, you're okay, is it? That's not exactly, live and let live, right? That's not it. That's not, I'm okay, you're okay, that's, you know what? I'm in desperate need of the Savior. Man, I'm guilty. I've blown it. And what does the law do? The law is a good thing because it's that mirror that you put up in front of your face. And you look at, you think you're doing great, and you put the mirror up and you go, you know what? I've blown it. I'm a sinner. Man, I need a Savior. Something's got to change. I can't do it. I've tried cleansing myself. I've tried to be better. I've tried to use the mirror. But it's the law as a taskmaster that leads us to the cross. The whole world is guilty before God. And again, it reveals the guilt of every man. It stops every mouth. You can't argue with it. When you look at God's word, it makes it really clear that we are all sinners. Again, its purpose is to show us our sin. What did Jesus say to the people? Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you can by no means be saved or by no means enter the kingdom of God, right? Now, they all thought the Pharisees were the most righteous guys on the planet. This would be like an impossible statement to them. What he's telling them is you can't be good enough yourself. Now, the good news is coming. We understand we're sinners. We're all guilty. We can't be good enough ourselves. Verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law cannot justify you. It reveals sin. There are too many people out there today. I know a lot of you came from places where you were taught you've got to keep all these rules so somehow maybe someday you'll be good enough so you can go to heaven. And they give you the rules and you keep trying and you just can't do it. I met a, a real devout Jewish man one time and, and he saw my Christian fish on the back of my car and he started saying to me, oh, you're one of those Christians, right? You follow that, you know, and they said some real vile things about our Savior I'm not even going to repeat. And I said... Yes, I am. I'm a born-again Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm born again. I'm going to heaven. Praise God. And it's all him, not me. Amen. Yeah, that's who I am. He said, well, you know, it's too easy to be a Christian. I'm a Jew. It's very difficult. So I have 252 laws I must keep. I go, how's that working out? How's that working for you? How you doing on 252 laws this week? I know 10 of them, and I know you're blowing it there, so, Right? 
And he goes, oh, it's very difficult to be a Jew. It's, it's, it, I said, dude, it's not difficult. It's impossible. It's impossible. There's none righteous. No, not one. You can't be good enough. Quit trying to strive to be good enough so maybe God will love you. He loves you right now. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came to seek and save the righteous. They wouldn't need a Savior. He came to seek and save that which was lost. That's us. We didn't find him. We're a bunch of blind guys stumbling around. We didn't know where we were. And he said, I'm over here. Okay, and we, fought, we, we responded. Amen? And he's saying the law won't save you. You can't be justified by the law. It just shows you your sin. Let's look at these last ten verses. This should be an encouragement to you. So we move now from the doctrine of sin, and we begin the doctrine of salvation. And we're going to talk about justification. What does it mean to be justified? Justified means just as if I never sinned. Amen? Just as if I never sinned. Justified. How are we justified? Let's look. For now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Justified is declared through righteousness, just as if you've never sinned. More than forgiveness, but it's imputed righteousness from God. Now notice, righteousness comes, it says in verse 21, apart from the law. The law does not save us, it reveals our need for a Savior. Attempting to approach God based on your good works, you'll never be good enough. It says there it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is another name for what? The Old Testament. When you see the law and the prophets in the Bible, you can write Old Testament there. So the Old Testament points to the way that we're justified. And I don't have time to do it, but if you go through the Old Testament, those of you who've been here when we looked at the sacrifices, who do all the sacrifices point to? Jesus. When you look at the tabernacle, what does every article in the, every furnishing in the tabernacle point to? Jesus. The covering of the tabernacle was black goat hair covered in ramskins dyed red. The black goat's hair of our sin, the ramskin dyed red, the shed blood of Jesus Christ that covers our sin. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus, and that's the way to righteousness. That's the way to holiness. That's the way to being justified. There's no other way that we can be. All clear pictures of Christ. Now in verse 22, it says, Justification comes by faith. It says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So we're justified not by good works, but by faith in Christ. How do you get to heaven? You get to heaven by being linked with Jesus. You know what's going to happen? Here's the reality. If you're like standing before a judge and you have 92,000 crimes and you're done and the fine is beyond what you can pay and at the moment that the gavel comes down and it's time for you to be hauled off, somebody steps up and says, I'll pay for him. I'll take his place. That's what Jesus did for us, amen? Because he's righteous and holy and perfect and he took our sin and he took our place that we might have eternal life. Look what it says there at the end of that verse. Justification is for all and to all. To Gentile, Jew, rich, poor, slave, free. Justification is for all of mankind. God didn't choose some, he, choose, he chose all. That none should perish, no, not one. Verse 23, for all have sinned 
and fall short of, the, of God's glory. Because all have sinned and we fall short of His glory, God's glory is the standard. Not how I measure up to other men, but how I measure up to Him. We're all sinners. Then we made that point pretty clear. Verse 24. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ. So what justifies us? Our good works? What does it say there? What's the key word there? Grace. What is grace? Unmerited favor. Being given something you don't deserve. Grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Not your expense. You don't pay it, you can't. You have nothing to bring. So we're justified, just as if we've never sinned, by God's grace, not our good works. We're not good enough so that we're saved. God is gracious enough to take our place and take our sin upon Himself that we can be saved. Amen? Tracking with that? All right. Verse 25. Whom God set up, set forth as propitiation by His blood, through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now the word there, first of all, we're redeemed. That means to purchase something back. Paying the price to purchase something back. The price of sin is death, and Jesus paid the price. But it says also, as a propitiation. That's just a big word that really speaks of taking the punishment. He not only paid the price, but He took the punishment. In order to satisfy God's law. And what paid for the punishment by His what? What does it say? His blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. As we take communion in just a few minutes, the juice is a representation of the shed blood of Christ. So not only did He pay the price for us, but He took the punishment for us. He redeemed us, and He took our punishment upon Himself. Salvation truly is a free gift. And look what it says there. He has forbearance. Now again, I'm running out of time, but I just want to say this quickly, that forbearance, he's speaking of the sins that have been previously committed. He's talking to the Jews. And what he's talking about is all the sins the Jews committed till Jesus came. What did they do to push their sins to the coming Messiah? They made what? Sacrifices. Remember that? And as they made sacrifices, it pushed the sin toward the coming Messiah. And Jesus came, and when he came, all of their sin was washed away. So with forbearance, with patience, he looked over their sin. Last few verses. Verse, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and justifier, one who has faith in Christ. I want you to see this, that Jesus is both just and justifier. He's both perfect and holy, and he's also the one that paid the price for you. Now lastly, look at the last few verses here. So how should we respond to this truth? Where is the boasting then? Is it excluded? It is excluded. By what law or works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from his deeds of the law. Or is he that the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since there is no God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised, there's one God, excuse me, circumcised, the just, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we not make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On contrary, we establish the law. So I want you to see lastly here. Why does the law exist? It reveals that we're sinners. Can we be saved by keeping the law? No. Did Jesus come to do away with the law? No. He came to fulfill it. So the law reveals we're sinners, so we need a Savior. So Jesus came and suffered and died that we might have eternal life. Then he lastly says, should we be boasting now? Should we walk around and be boasting 
about how we're one of the chosen? No, we should say, thank you, Lord, for your grace. I don't deserve it. It's by your love, your grace, your infinite mercy that you take a sinner like me and transform my life. There had to be a perfect holy sacrifice to redeem us, and only Jesus Christ could be that sacrifice. We're justified through Christ, not our works. If you think you're working your way to heaven, if you think good works or fasting or devotions will work, you know what good works does? I found this to be true. When we try to work our way to heaven, you know what happens? We, we rob ourselves of joy and worship. If you understand that you are in sinner in desperate need of a Savior, what does it cause you to do when you look at Him? Worship, doesn't it? Because you realize, Lord, it has nothing to do with me and everything to do with you. How can I not worship you? But you'll find people that are, that are trying to get there on their works. There's no joy, right? There's condemnation. Everybody's pointing at everybody else's sin all the time. Instead of just realizing, I'm a sinner saved by grace, thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Instead of having joy, there's condemnation. Faith in Christ is what brings redemption. Does it make void the law? Absolutely not. And again, it's not the law that saves us. So in review, a mirror to man's soul. When the mirror of God's Word is held up to you and I, we realize we're sinners in need of a Savior. We're all guilty spiritually. We can't be good enough to get there on our own. There's none righteous, no, not one. Going to church won't get you to heaven. Being a good person won't get you to heaven. Bacon cookies for everyone in the neighborhood won't get you to heaven. Those are good things, but you're still a sinner. Your sin has to be paid for. If you stand before God with your sin unpaid for, He has no choice but to separate you from Him. Because if He has one sin in heaven, He's got earth part two. And so we see lastly that justification is by faith. It's a result of repentance that brings forth salvation. The law reveals our sin. It's a taskmaster that leads us to the cross. So how are you justified? How has it become that just as if you never sinned? It comes apart from the law. It comes by faith in Christ. It's to all who believe. It's a free gift, though it wasn't cheap. It resolves the divine dilemma of taking sinful man and restoring him back to holy God. If you're here this morning and you've said, I'm a sinner, Jesus be my Savior, you've been justified. And it's just as if you never sinned. Are you going to be perfect going forward? No. Are you going to be sinless? No. As Christians, we're not sinless, but we should sin less. Amen? We should pursue Him. It's a transformed life that produces holy living, not trying to live holy that produces a transformed life. You've got to have Jesus come inside, you know, the Holy Spirit come inside of you, Him transform your life before you're going to live a transformed life. Be more reliant upon Him and you'll live different. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and we thank You that You are a risen and living Savior. And we thank You that while we're not righteous and we're not holy and we're not deserving of salvation, Lord, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We thank You, Lord, that You took the sin of every man, woman, and child in this room this morning upon Yourself at the cross. And You paid the price for our sin. We thank You, Lord. We ask, Father God, that as we go to this time of communion, that we would not take that work of the cross for granted. Lord, that we would look back in remembrance of that work. We would be thankful. We would worship you because of what you've done for us. I'm not going to take a lot of time with this because I know we're a little over time, but you know what? Eternity's in the balance. If you're here this morning and you've maybe been trying to be good enough, maybe you thought because you went to church or you've been baptized or you've been confirmed or whatever it might be that you're going to heaven, but you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You've never truly repented of your sin, which means to turn away. 
All you have to do, the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved at the glory of the Father. How do you go to heaven? You simply admit you're a sinner and ask Jesus to be your Savior. If you're here this morning, all you have to do is confess your sin and pray a simple prayer to say, Jesus, come into my life, forgive me, and he will. And you can know for sure when you walk out of this place, you've been born again. If you're here this morning and you want to know for sure you've been born again, you want to know for sure you're going to heaven, and you want to openly confess you're a sinner and ask him to be your Savior, I'm just going to ask you to do something real simple. Raise your hand so that I can pray with you. Is there anybody here at all? Jesus loves you guys. He loves you. He suffered and died. You might have eternal life. Don't walk out of here without him. Know for sure that when you leave that you're going to heaven. Is there anybody at all? Lord, we do. We thank you again and we praise you. And Lord, as we go to this time of communion, again, prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys now. We're going to go to communion right now. If you need to go to the restroom or something, go ahead. But here's what we're going to do. Communion is real simple. It's a picture of the cross. It's a picture of that work that Jesus did for us. In a moment, the worship team is going to begin to play music. Just come on up. Take the elements. Go back and sit down. And again, remember that the, the bread is a picture of his body, which was broken for you. The juice is a picture of the blood that paid the price for your sin. And as you sit and take communion, just remember that great work he did for you. Now, I want to say this. It's for Christians. Because communion is done in remembrance of what he has done for us. So if you're a born-again Christian, you don't have to...